All right, well, good morning again, Hillcrest, and to those of you over at the Spanish Trail campus, a blessed morning uh, to you as well, and happy Memorial Day weekend to those of you that have gathered uh, with us at our campus on the other side of town. Sure is good to worship the Lord. Great to be in the house of God. Speaking of Spanish Trail, let me announce to all of you at Nine Mile that beginning uh, the first Sunday in June, Dalton Smith will be the new worship leader at our Spanish Trail campus on a full-time basis. Many of you have heard he's led here a time or two before. And so uh, congratulations to Dalton. We've known him for a long time, and amen. Let's put our hands together and say welcome aboard uh, to Dalton. He's a great guy, and of course, his grandparents, Don and Glenda Smith, have been here at Hillcrest for many, many years, and they're neighbors of mine and uh, have kept me supplied uh, with collard greens for 14 years now. Can I have an amen? And so that's a family that we love very, very much and are proud for him and proud for the good people there at Spanish Trail. Let's take our Bibles. Man, I'm excited about this message today. One of the great accounts in all of the Bible, even people who don't know anything about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ know about the story that we're going to talk about today from the end of Jonah chapter 1 all the way through to the end of Jonah chapter 2. I want to speak with you for a few moments this morning on the subject when God says time out. Many parents, of course, in the day and time that we've lived in over the last couple, three decades have found that an effective tool for disciplining their young children is a procedure that they call time out been around for a while, and depending on the temperament and the disposition of the child, it's become kind of a popular way to calm them down and teach them a lesson. You got a child that's a little hyper, not listening, loud, a little bit out of control. You know the routine. You take them out of their environment, move them to a quiet place, set them down with the instruction. You stay right there until you're ready to straighten up and fly right. May I just say this morning that no such disciplinary tactic existed when I was a boy. Uh, my mother insisted on disciplining us three boys uh, with what she called the biblical method. She called it the laying on of hands. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> I remember, I'll never forget when Whitney was a toddler, my mother sent me a book in the mail. And I opened it up, and the title of the book was How to Discipline Your Child Without Spanking. And I called her, and I said, what you doing sending me a book that you obviously never read in your life? <laughs> well, uh, I suppose that we could say that God used the timeout method of disciplining a child named Jonah before using timeout was a cool thing to do. He takes the selfish, tantrum-throwing, rebellious prophet and puts him in the most famous timeout in the history of the world. You recall with me, do you not, those of you that have been with us so far on our journey through the brief book of Jonah, that God had given the reluctant prophet instructions to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a wicked, bloodthirsty people that was on the rise and would be during that period of time, about 750 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest threat to the national security of ancient Israel. God tells Jonah, 
to go to these Gentiles and preach the message of the gospel of grace and forgiveness to encourage them that judgment was coming, but they didn't have to be judged. They could turn to God, repent of their sins, and be saved. But Jonah refuses to go. He was angry at the call, and frankly, I think he was fearful at the call, and he considered what it would mean to call these bloodthirsty enemies to repentance. It could have cost him his life. And so he rebels and hops a ship bound for the most distant port in the then known world, a place called Tarshish, about 2,000 miles west of the coast of modern-day Israel, the farthest port of call west known to man. That was the end of the earth, the farthest place that Jonah knew he could run. But what he found out was that it is impossible to flee from the presence of God or from the will of God. In fact, Joseph, uh, Jonah's disobedience led him right in the middle of a terrific storm sent by the very God that he's trying to dodge. But not even a storm would bring Jonah to his senses as we uncovered last week. He knows that he's responsible for the storm and so he manipulates the sailors to throw him overboard in order to calm the storm and they try of course to keep from doing that but that's eventually what they have to do or they fear they're all going to die. And I'm sure that when he was tossed overboard, in Jonah's mind anyway, he thought that was it, that his life was over. And I think at that point, so contrary was his spirit in opposition to the will of God that he was probably just fine with his life having been snuffed out. That's how out of sorts he was with the spirit of God in this critical moment of his life. And what happens next, of course, reveals that even though Jonah thought he was finished with God. We find out God wasn't finished with Jonah. Amen. And God's not finished with some of you either. You may have washed your hands of God, but if you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, can I tell you something today? God's not finished with you. And God never allows any of his children to live in disobedience. He never allows his kids to simply bow their head turn to their own desires and walk away from God and walk into their own will. God will never allow you to do that because he loves you too much to see you make a mess of your life. And in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17, we may have what is the most familiar verse in all the short letter of Jonah. Notice it with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, let's stop there for just a moment because without a doubt, this becomes the most famous fish story in all the Bible. And the Bible's got a lot of fish stories in it, a lot of them in the New Testament concerning Jesus and the disciples and great catches of fish. But this is the one that I think caused the most skepticism, Sinclair Ferguson in his little book on Jonah says that this has to be the most criticized fish in the history of the world. And it may be the most disbelieved miracle in all of the Bible. Many people read this and they think, well, that's the kind of thing that happens to Pinocchio, but that could never happen to like a real life human being, a real purpose. Could that really happen? Well, let me just say, it's not likely to happen. I'll give you that. But there's not a miracle in the Bible that can be described as likely to happen. Isn't that right? Creation was not likely to happen. Creation out of nothing. Dead people being raised back to life. Uh, 
out of a cut rock tomb after being dead for four days like Lazarus. Well, that wasn't likely to happen. People born blind from birth, never having able to, been, to have walked a day in their life, being restored to total sight and total wholeness physical. That is not likely to happen. And having a Savior bear in his body the sins of all the world, past, present, and future, to be buried and three days later to rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, one day get up off the throne, come again, that wasn't likely to happen either. That's the very definition of a miracle, and it's why we call it a miracle, because these things are supernatural occurrences. In fact, this is not even the most um, unbelievable miracle in the Bible, in my opinion. There are others that are far more fantastic than this, seafaring lore, navy lore. I mean, there's been story after story through the centuries of fish being cut open and there's a human being inside and guess what? He's still alive. It's happened before. But this is an unusual story to say the least. And the reason that I believe it happened just like it did is because one, I do believe in the miraculous. I believe in a God who does supernatural things. But here's the thing, Jesus believed it happened, amen. And he said so in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 39. Watch what Jesus said. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah, and that's a very important phrase, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And let me just say, if the story's good enough for Jesus, the story's good enough for Jim Locke, amen. But here's the thing. The, the fish is nothing more than a bit player in this story. The fish is not important, except as a means of deliverance for Jonah. He only gets three verses in the whole book. So he's far from the main focus. What's important is what happens to Jonah inside that fish. That's what's important. What's important, the takeaway, is the transformation that happens to the rebellious prophet when he's in solitary confinement inside the belly of the fish. It was God's way of taking this rebel without a cause, this out-of-control, angry prophet, and putting him in a divine timeout. Can I ask you this morning, has God ever put you in a divine timeout? Brought your life to a screeching halt? put you in solitary confinement. Listen, God will do that to his kids when they begin to drift spiritually. And you'll wonder, what in the world's going on? Well, God's probably trying to get your attention. That's what's going on. It might be a hospital bed. It might be a broken relationship. It might be an unexpected layoff. It might be wrecked finances. And the purpose of that time out is to get you back connected with God to get turned away, as we shall see in a moment, from the things that are controlling your life and put your life back in the control of Almighty God. There is always a purpose when God calls a timeout. R.T. Kendall said one time, the belly of a fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. And whatever your timeout, whatever your fish belly might be from time to time in life, there's always something that God wants you to learn when he puts you there. And that was certainly true for Jonah. What's most important is what Jonah does in the midst of this timeout. He does a very wise thing. What does Jonah do in the belly of the fish? He connects to God. He prays. 
he prays. He hadn't been praying for a long, long time. He was afraid of what would happen if he did pray. He was afraid of what the prayer would result in. So his life had taken on a silence. Jonah had put God in time out. And God puts him in time out in order to reconnect the relationship. And it's that prayer, not the fish, that becomes the focus of the second chapter of the book of Jonah. Now, you're ready to take a look at the prayer. Let's notice it in Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out up on the dry land. Isn't that a great prayer? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like something David would have written in one of the Psalms, doesn't it? That's what this is. It really is a psalm. It's a beautiful, lyrical prayer from the man of God to God himself after a time of separation. And what we're going to see in the life of Jonah, I think, reveals some things that we should see and do whenever God takes us in our time of spiritual drift and puts us in a divine Time out. I'm going to give you three things to write down today. First of all, when you're in a divine timeout, you review the trajectory of your life. Review the trajectory of your life, the course of your life, the pattern of your life, how you ended up to begin with in this timeout. Because to this point, you would agree with me, I'm sure, that there's no question but that Jonah's life is in something of a free fall up to this point. From the time that God calls him, his life was from that instance on a downward trajectory. It's a word that's used frequently in the first couple of chapters. His life was going down, down, down. First, we see Jonah going down to Joppa. And then he goes down into the belly of the ship. Then when the storm hits, Jonah gets tossed overboard and he begins to go down, down, down into the depths of the sea. It's a constant downward trajectory trajectory and that's what disobedience always does to the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ look what he comes to realize beginning in verse number five 
the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds, seaweeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. It's interesting that that scientific piece of information was known even this long ago that the mountain bases are at the root of the sea. They didn't have these wonderful plottings of sea level floors that we have today and yet Jonah knew he was going way down in the belly of the ocean. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Can I just ask this morning, have you ever felt that way in your life? Does that describe anybody's life here today like the flood's about to overwhelm you and that God is just distant from you? You are as far away from God and God is as far away from you as can possibly be. Can I just make a statement? God never forgets his children. God hasn't forgotten you. And the fish, by the way, is a sign that God hadn't forgotten Jonah either because as much as that fish is a means of discipline for Jonah, can I just say it, that fish was a grace gift from God to Jonah because that fish really is the ark of deliverance. That's the ark of safety for Jonah, one that God sent not only to save his life but to give Jonah sufficient time to reflect through prayer and fellowship with God. Now, the conditions aren't greatest uh, that they could be for a timeout. I mean, it's anything but a prayer garden, right? I mean, it probably smelled like an outhouse in there. And Jonah couldn't move. He was bound and confined to very tight quarters. But at least he could breathe. God hadn't required his life. And at least he could think. And while he's in there, he begins to review this encounter uh, and This encounter with God becomes a very moving experience. God reminds him of his calling. And that's oftentimes what happens with these near-death kind of experiences. The fish becomes something of a makeshift hospital for Jonah and his spiritual life. And notice among the first conclusions that he draws in this time of solitary confinement is in verse number eight when he makes this statement. It's an interesting statement that applies to his very life and applies to probably many people even in the room today. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The New International Version says that to cling to worthless idols is to forfeit the grace of of God. There is an inverse relationship between idolatry on the one hand and the favor and blessing of God on another. And if you and I are engaged in pattern idolatry of some kind, you ought not to expect to receive God's very best in your life. In fact, quite the opposite, the discipline of the Lord is soon on its way. Now, we know that Jonah knew something of idolatry because he's got pagan nations all around him. That's part of the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew knew that those people sacrificed their own children to Dagon and to Ishtar on the altars of fiery sacrifice. And it was reprehensible to Jonah. He knew those Phoenician sailors on whose ship Jonah was trying to get to Tarshish, had their own physical idols on board the ship with them. And no doubt those Phoenician sailors were praying to those very statuette gods that they possessed. But you don't have to do those kinds of things to be an idolater. That's one of the great 
sobering teachings of the Bible because God comes to Jonah and helps him to understand that because the object of his worship was his own life and his own will and his own trajectory, the pattern that he wanted to embrace in life, he became a self-idolater and that was just as offensive in the eyes of Almighty God. Jonah doing what he wanted to do independently of the will of God, that was the greatest form of idolatry known to man at the time and truth be told, it still is today. And God wanted Jonah not only to understand grace, but he wanted Jonah to be a preacher of grace, to be a minister of grace. And for that to happen, for Jonah to have any usefulness to God whatsoever, the first thing that Jonah had to do was come to grips. Listen to me, he had to come to grips with his own idolatry. And probably some of us in the room need to do that thing as well. He doesn't worship carved images, but he valued himself and his ways more than he valued God. And that made him every bit just as much the idolater as the pagan neighbors that he'd come to despise. He was setting himself up in God's place, which is what we do anytime we make a decision to call our own shots in life. From the very moment that God got inside of his bubble and shook up his world, Jonah's doing virtually the exact opposite of everything that God has called him to do. And the important thing to realize is that God wants to bring him back. That's God ministering grace to Jonah so that Jonah can receive it and then minister it to other people who need it as well. But before that can happen, before revival can happen in anybody's life, before spiritual renewal can transform a life, there first has to be a recognition that you are far from God, it's of your own doing, and you have to first recognize that you need that kind of transformation. And that always begins with rooting out the idolatry prevalent in your own life. Jesus said it, and it's why he said it. No man can serve what? Two masters. And the time to review and the time to respond is always today before God has to take you and put you in a very uncomfortable place so that whatever is more important to you than God and obedience to God can be rooted out and destroyed. That's the first step back to God, identifying those idols and lay them down in order that God can use your life with great impact. Second, a divine timeout can help you recognize the love and the mercy of God. That's one of the hardest things, by the way, that children have to learn is that actually discipline is a sign of love, right? Because it doesn't feel like love. It feels like anger, and it feels like hostility, and it feels like resentment. But the worst thing a parent can do is withhold discipline from their child. In fact, the Bible says if we as parents, godly parents, withhold discipline from our child, we ought never say that we love the children. Because whoever does not discipline their child does not love their child. That's what the scripture says. Hebrews chapter 
12. And with respect to Jonah, the fact that God just keeps pursuing him in spite of his obstinance. I'm telling you, that's just a great picture of the love and the relentless grace of God. And it's a grace that Jonah needs to catch. You see a sign of some of that, that it's beginning to happen in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 2, where Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol, by the way, is a very mysterious concept in ancient Jewish thought. It's kind of a, a synonym for the grave. Sheol is the abode of the dead. It's, it's a place of extreme separation from God. And that's how Jonah saw his situation. I mean, this is where Jonah thought he was going. When he got thrown into the ocean and started going down, 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 and all of that seaweed that had gotten stirred up in that stormy sea was wrapping around his head, and he was going down to the deepest part of the ocean where the base of the mountains were. In his mind, it was over, and he was going to the Jewish abode of the dead, a place even further from God than Tarshish. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds around my head, roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Those are all references to the sea. And this whole episode is what Martin Luther called God's merciful wrath. It's kind of an oxymoron. The merciful wrath of God. God shows his wrath against sin and disobedience as he sends the storm. The storm is a picture of the wrath of God, the anger of God settled against sin. But then there's his mercy, which is pictured in the fish that comes to swallow up the wayward prophet and protect Jonah in the midst of the storm and actually to keep Jonah from going to that watery grave. And now finally Jonah's beginning to see it when he's in his divine time out. His eyes are beginning to be opened again to the work of God in his life, that God loves his child enough to confront him in the midst of his disobedience that he might set him back on the road to blessing and back on the road to usefulness again. Reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, very familiar verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. The word temptation can also be translated testing. Testing, temptation, same word in the Greek New Testament. No temptation, no time of testing has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is what? Say it out loud. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted slash tested beyond your ability, but will with the time of testing make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's exactly what the Lord is doing here with the prophet Jonah. He's going through a tremendous test in his life that is the result of his disobedience and his time of spiritual drift. But God never lets him go because he loves him too much to do that. And rather than let him destroy his own life, God takes him and puts him in a divine timeout. And that divine timeout in the form of a fish is a way of escape for Jonah. And God will send a way of escape for you. You can be sure God's going to discipline you when he 
sees that you're beginning to worship and serve things other than him, when things become more important in your life, people become more important in your life than he is, there will be discipline because God is what kind of God? First commandment, the Lord thy God is what kind of God? A jealous God. It's the reason the Bible presents a God that demands exclusive worship. Appreciate other things, even love other things. But don't worship anything other than God. And when you do, God knows that you're on a path towards self-destruction and he's going to do everything that he can to steer your life clear of the mess that you can make of it when you make a decision that you know more than God. Hebrews 12 makes it clear. God disciplines those he loves. He does it lovingly. He doesn't do it haphazardly. So much of our discipline as parents, and if my kids were here today, and both of them are gone today so I can talk about them, but if they were here today, they would tell you, you know, so much of discipline, and any kid will tell you this, seems haphazard. And oftentimes, it's very imperfect, isn't it? How many of you parents have disciplined your children before only later to find out that you were in the wrong? That mom or dad had less than complete information and that you were trying to set the record straight, but they didn't believe you. They didn't trust you. And you got the hammer. And even when the truth was found out, you couldn't remove the hammer. It was done. Even the best parents discipline imperfectly, but God never does, and I'm grateful for that. And that's why you don't have to check out on God when God brings a little bit of pain into your life or when God brings a little bit of adversity or when God allows a little bit of trouble because it's always with the best interest of the child in mind, knowing 100% of the facts all the time. So when God puts you in a timeout, let it remind you of who God is and let it remind you of how much God loves you. He loves you too much to let you go. So much that he's willing even to let you suffer a little bit, even to endure some short-term gain in order to get you to a place of long-term spiritual profit. And with that in mind, there is an end game to the divine timeout, and that's the third thing that we see from this passage of Scripture. And that is the end game of timeout is always repentance when it comes to God. What does God want Jonah to do in his time of obstinacy, in his time of rebellion, more than anything else? He wants him to repent. That's a word that's become kind of a four-letter word in the culture today. In fact, many churches and preachers even and Bible teachers steer clear of the word repent because they think it casts a negative tone. It's one of the most important of all biblical words. There is no salvation apart from repentance. You can't be saved. You can't know Christ apart from repentance. I wouldn't want to stand before God and say, you know what, I just didn't want to offend anybody, so I never talked about the importance of repentance. God, help a person. No, repentance is like absolutely essential. And it's not like in your Christian life you repent one time and never have to do it again. Can I say, there's almost never a day that goes by that this preacher doesn't repent before a holy God. Because it doesn't take very long to recognize 
that even at my very best, I still have the propensity to mess everything up every day of my life. And so God wants us to repent. That's why he does what he does in his work of discipline. While he's in the belly of the fish or stuck in the throat of the fish or whatever it was, Jonah seems to finally get it. He finally understands that this is not a whimsical God that he serves, that this is a sovereign God of heaven and earth, that this is a God who truly is control. And Jonah comes to realize that it is God who's in control and not him. He is not in control of his own life, not nearly so much as he thought he was. Did you notice in this prayer how Jonah attributes everything to God? Everything is attributed to God. He says in verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the sea. The flood surrounded me. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. Verse 6, yet you brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God. Man, that's a marvelous revelation because as Jonah is going down, 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 he comes to realize and says to God, but it was all you, 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 you. He realized that God loved him enough that God was manipulating every event that was happening in his life in such a way as to draw that center back to himself. And that's a confession where Jonah finally realizes two very important things. One, that it was God who sent the storm, but two, it's also God who saved the sinner. And the first was intended to bring about the second. And it was at that moment, I think, that Jonah had the attitude adjustment that was necessary for him to find renewal and for God to use him to change the world. Verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then watch this statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. Can we just say that last phrase out loud together? Together. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Say it again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You need to mark that sentence in red ink in your Bible because that's the message of Jonah in a single statement. And can I say it? It's far bigger than encapsulating the single message of Jonah. That may be the message of the whole Bible summarized down to its most basic concept. If someone comes up to you and hands you a Bible and says, I don't know what this book is all about, what's the bottom line? That'd be a good place to go. That book says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that confession in a word is repentance. It's at that moment that you see the obstinate prophet turn away from himself and turn back to God. It's far more than Jonah just feeling sorry for what he did. No, he makes a decision to do a complete 180, a complete turnaround, which is what repentance is. He realizes he's going the wrong way, that God loved him enough 
to keep coming after him, relentless grace on the part of God. He agrees with God that he was the one that was all wrong and he makes the necessary U-turn. That must take place in order for God to restore him and to use him and to bless him. And that's true for us too. There'll be times where God looks at you and he says, okay, time out. And when he does, see it as an opportunity to know three things. One, you review your life. How in the world did I get here to begin with? Two, you recognize the relentless, pursuing, unceasing love of God. And three, you repent of the obstinacy and the rebellion that got you there in the first place. We'll find out next time that God loves to give second chances. And he does with Jonah. But to get there, he first has to break the stubborn will of every wayward child. And the lesson of Jonah is sometimes the only way for that to happen is for God to say, time out. Don't be mad when he does. Be glad. God is showing you grace and he's preparing you to turn your world upside down with the power of the gospel. This is God's word and let all who agree say amen this morning.